The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So we're driving for an hour uh, up the mountain in these dirt roads. One of the episodes that we did for the TV show was about cocaine, where we essentially followed the route that a kilo of coke takes from its source all the way to the United States. And we started in the jungles of Peru, where a lot of the cocaine in the world comes from. So they're checking the area to make sure that everything is safe. After weeks of waiting, we finally got a call that we were going to get access to what we've been waiting for. And uh, we're told that we had to hike for miles and miles in total darkness. I mean, the moon wasn't even out that night. Aquí está. Wow. After this crazy, wild adventure into the jungle, suddenly there it was, a cocaine pit. Uh, You know, what we've been waiting to find for the longest time was right in front of our eyes. Yeah, so they've been doing this for three days, and now this is the final step, which they mix it with salt. And it was this massive, sort of Olympic-sized pool with all these leaves that were being macerated and eventually what were going to be turned into cocaine. It's a really, really intense smell. Is gasolina? Sí. So then we saw the next process where they actually make the cocaine and they, you know, mix it with gallons and gallons of ammonia and bleach and lime and gas. They asked me if I wanted to try it. This is a critical part of the cocaine pipeline. Um, But after spending some time filming it, the chemist turned to us and said, we have to run. He completely panicked and told us that we'd been spotted by the locals and that they wouldn't be happy if they saw us filming there. So we had to grab our bags, our gear, and run out of there as fast as possible. Hey guys, we have to go right now. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market and meet the people who make their living inside it. But the Trafficked podcast is a little different. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market, how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. Cocaine is one of the most commonly used drugs in the United States. So for today's episode, I want to go back to the early days of Coke and meet a guy who knows those days really, really well. A guy who smuggled cocaine into a city that became notorious for its drug wars. Welcome to Miami in the 70s and 80s. So tell us, give us an introduction. J.C. Perez. Uh, I'm a good old Jersey, New York kid who ended up in Florida doing crazy things. Over the years, JC says he smuggled thousands of pounds of weed and coke into the US by way of Bimini in the Bahamas. I looked at it as 150%. You had 50 to win, 50 to lose, and 50 to die. Along the way, JC says, his trafficking game changed. He switched his route from speedboats to airplane and piloted drug runs for one of the biggest bosses in the business. Half of those missing people in the Bermuda Triangle are drug runs gone bad. You think they're going to find you? Oh, you're going to call up the police and go, oh, by the way, I had a drug shipment coming up and it hasn't arrived yet. Can you please check because it's lost? That doesn't happen. A disclaimer first. The story of J.C.'s life as a smuggler has not been reported before. We got in touch with J.C. through another source who verified his involvement in the cocaine trade. 
there are no accessible court records to corroborate his drug crimes. We'll get to why later. But enough information checks out. So we think you should hear his story. Do you remember anything about your life in Cuba before you moved to the States? My first memories of, of Cuba were being pushed under a bed by my mother and father, and, and uh, I, I could hear gunfire and uh, explosions going off. My family was heavily in, involved in the revolution. My father was involved uh, in, in intelligence. My mother, God bless her soul, didn't like to take crap from anybody. So we were persona non grata in a way. Uh, so, you know, it was a matter of getting out of Cuba at that time. JC's family was opposed to the Castro-led revolution, and they wanted to flee the island. The only thing that was actually going on at that time were, were the Peter Pan flights. From 1960 to 1962, the Catholic Welfare Bureau, in coordination with the U.S. State Department, organized what were called Peter Pan flights. They brought 14,000 unaccompanied kids from Cuba to the U.S. And I happen to have been one of them. Um, in my opinion, if you didn't have money, if, you, if, you, if your parents weren't well-to-do, and if you weren't white, and if you weren't Catholic, you could kiss that flag goodbye. J.C. lived in Miami with distant aunts, basically strangers. But then finally, his parents made it to the States and came to pick him up. The next thing that I knew, we were off to New Jersey. I had an uncle in, that was in Jersey at the time. My mom and dad wanted to get up there to continue uh, the fight with La Causa, you know, the, the, the Cuban cause. So they had a bone to pick with, with Castro. They were training troops in the hills of New Jersey to go, you know, back and, and fight Cuba. And as a kid, they used to dress me up in, in camo and shave my head and put a gun in my hand. At, at that time, it was a little wooden gun, but, but that went on for a long time uh, for me as a child. Uh, I can remember, you know, I'd step out of the house and I was in the good old USA. But when I went back home and, and went through the door, I was back in Cuba. You know, from, from the discussion to the food to you name it. What was it like growing up in New Jersey as a Cuban kid? Well, it wasn't bad, even though if the, if the question is being directed at was there racism, was there bigotry? Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. Did you feel like an outsider? Absolutely. Shit, I, I, I felt that, and it was constant. As a child, you're trying to be, you know, I was trying to be as much American as, as possible. I was trying to fit into everything. I, you know, right down to being a little bit embarrassed about my parents' accents. People identified as, oh, you come from that place where, where that guy wants to start the Third World War. You know, I'm, I'm seven, eight years old. What the hell do I know about that, that shit? Right. My parents didn't have to live through that, but I was out there every day. I lived through it all the time. My parents could pick and choose because, you know, they were in their own world. Me, <laughs> out the door, go to school and deal with it. He had what I consider a very American dream. See, when I was a kid, they used to ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say a millionaire. And so I was gung-ho to make my mark economically. He took courses at various colleges, but was really looking for work, how to start making that economic mark quickly. The year was 1976. I was in Jersey, and uh, there was no work, there was nothing going on. And uh, I heard that there was work in Houston, construction. So I took off to Houston, 
And I was there probably two weeks max. My mom probably was like saying to herself, you know, I had to let him go once, you know, and it's not gonna happen again. She sent a family friend to pay him a little visit. He comes to see me and he starts telling me uh, about how he's doing so well in Miami. And he tells me that he's doing it with a roach coach. You know what a roach coach is? No, I don't. What's a roach coach? A roach coach is those, those, uh, those lunch trucks that show up at construction sites and sell lunches and breakfast to the workers. Maybe everybody else knows what a roach coach is, but I didn't. And it turns out it's a derogatory term for a sort of blue-collar food truck. So he, he's telling me that he's, you know, doing really good and, oh, my God, in Miami, and I'm making all this money on a roach coach. That's when I told him, I've been around here long enough to know that what you're telling me is complete bullshit. And uh, so he finally broke down. And, uh, and he told me, he goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm involved in a little smuggling. And uh, he's, he begins to talk me into going down there to go to Miami. And, and believe me, he didn't have to twist my arm and say, come down, you know, I'll get you work. And, and that's all it took. I didn't get into any particulars. I'm just, I just said, okay, no problem. I'll be there the day after tomorrow. Um, so you knew it was smuggling? Did you know it was drugs? And did you know what kind of drugs? Well, if you consider marijuana drugs, yeah. Yeah, I don't consider marijuana drugs. Um, I consider it an herb, just like the Jamaicans say. I smoked weed anyway. So to me, it was like, that's cool. You know, I got no problem with that. Next morning he comes by, he gave me three grand, $3,000, and, uh, and said, come on down, as soon as you get down there, call me up and uh, I'll set you up. So I bought a bag of good Mexican weed, and I hit I-10, and I didn't stop until I hit Copan Grove. Whew, right down into Miami. JC was driving straight into the Wild West of Miami's organized drug trade. And in the 1970s, business was booming. By 1981, 70% of the nation's cocaine, 70% of its marijuana, and 90% of counterfeit quaaludes enter the American pipeline through Miami. So I finally get an interview with the bosses. Uh, in this building that's still there down on Biscayne Boulevard. So I go there and I start talking to these two gentlemen. One of them was, they knew him as the Colonel, and the other one was El Colorado, or Red. Uh, why, I don't know, I, I, I don't question those things. Uh, so they tell me, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we got work coming up and we're gonna use you and we're gonna pay you $2 a pound. And, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker at, at, at heart and at speech, so I don't hold back. So I, I pretty much looked at him and I, I looked at both of them and I'm like, are you, you guys freaking crazy? I'm going to risk my ass for what, a few dollars? Shit, I could hustle that selling tomatoes on the street corner, bro. The two guys are sitting there with smirks on their faces. I felt like slapping both of them. But anyway, I, I get taken out of the room. He goes, you need to learn how to shut up. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You think I'm going to wreck? He goes, you're going to go work on 40 tons. Okay, that's 80,000 pounds times two. Okay, it's 160,000 that I was going to make. $160,000, yeah. Yes, 
Yes. So, I mean, my eyes began to flutter. <laughs> I was like, what? I, th I thought I had just become a millionaire. <laughs> That's what went through my mind. Oh my God, I got rich. The job took JC to the marshy coast of the Everglades in South Florida. He was told that their cargo was coming off a freighter ship. And that was the end of that era, by the way, was where big freighters would park in international waters. Anything 12 miles off the coast, the U.S. was not allowed to, to board them or approach them, period. And on a big freighter, you know, you think 40 tons, oh my God, it's, it's like a, it's, that's like hiding a mouse. The speedboats would go out, pick it up, bring it back to shore, and I was one of the humps at, on shore. So I'm wading through mangroves and, and all kinds of bullshit with, you know, carrying bales in, inland and, and giving them the people who were transporting them to, to the trucks and, and that. So about a week later, after all that ended, uh, they called me back to their office. What kind of office? I mean, what were they, what was the front business? Enterprises. If you find out, let me know. I have no idea. I just knew that they had a nice office, you know, with a little waiting room and they each had individual, you know, desks in there, you know. One of them looked like a, like a, like a dinner table for 12. You know, he's sitting behind it and I'm looking at him going, boy, this guy's a little pretentious, you know. Uh, but he, they gave me a, the bag, uh, you know, it's like it's a, it's a brown paper bag. It was full of cash. And uh, I left. Every penny was there. 160000 on the nose. They didn't take one penny. They didn't overpay either, but they didn't rob me. And the first 160000 went like water. What did you do with a wad of cash that big? What didn't I do? What didn't I? What stupidities probably didn't I do? I, I bought a car, I had a nice apartment, I went out partying, I smoked great weed, drank the best of wine, ate great food, and before I knew it, just from, from being an ass and, and not watching my finances, most of it was gone. His family friend had started to take small drug runs in the Bahamas. He took me on a couple of little runs but they were like a couple hundred pounds. You know, the money was, you know, it was, I was better off getting a job. But the Bahamas was bustling, and soon enough, as is so common for the traffickers I've met, JC found himself in the right place at the right time. JC says there was a lot of Jamaican weed coming through the Bahamas, and he started smuggling that weed to the US. But at one point, he found an alternative source for his product. It happened on one of his smuggling trips, where he said he met someone from the Bahamas who was quite entrepreneurial. You know, I looked at him and I said, I said, are you making any money? And he goes, no, nah, man, I'm getting crumbs. I said, I'm getting the same thing over there. Why don't, why don't we do something? Uh, I mean, you've probably heard this before about the, uh, the square grouper, you know, a bale. A bale of marijuana floating in the water. This is because the laws about freight ships were getting stricter, and there was more policing of the waters. And if authorities located a smuggling freight, people hauling these bales of weed would throw them overboard. Once in the water, they became, well, square groupers. So they started this new business with very high profit margins. People would toss their loads of drugs overboard to save their skins, and JC and his partner swooped in 
to fish them out. And it was all free, well, between me and my partner. Once he acquired the free weed, JC would load it into a clavo, a pirate's hole, in his boat. The tricky part was entering U.S. waters. But JC's boat was expertly disguised as a regular old fishing boat. He brought fishing rods and even brought around buckets of fish and wore touristy T-shirts to look the part. So did the, did the drug traffickers that owned that weed that had to throw it off the boat, did they not look, come looking for you guys? No. If you throw it out, what are they going to look I for? I ask, where, where's my Floating weed? Floating weed? Where's your weed? It's in Miami. <laughs> where I was going to end up anyway. New York, Canada. Yeah, it's everywhere but where you left it. That's where it is. <laughs> Yeah, no, once you threw it, that was it. That, that belonged to, to, to whoever. As a matter of fact, Bimanites consider anything that floats close to their shores theirs. I was in Bimini one time, and we, were, we had been partying all night. We were partying at what they call the Complete Angler. There was an old uh, cashew tree. It was like seeds. The, the, the cashew tree had all kinds of roots coming out. And we would sit there and drink beer and smoke joints. Just as the sun was coming up, we start seeing all these little dots all over the ocean. As far as you could look south, west, towards Miami, and north on, in the Gulf Stream. All these little dots everywhere. We were going, what the hell is that? We were all drunk and stoned. Finally, one of the boys goes down to the beach, wades out in the water about waist high, grabs one of these things, pulls them in, and looks up and goes, hey guys, it's bales. There was bales as far as you could see one way and the other. We just started grabbing it and bringing them in, bringing them in, bringing them in. We ended up with, in the neighborhood of 5,000 pounds that day. And by the way, everybody on that island, women, children, eight to 80, you name it, everybody got bales. And we scored every bit of it. We scored every bit of it. <laughs> You know, I spent time in uh, the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua, and there they kept referring to something that they call the white lobster, or they call it in, <laughs> in Spanish, el maná del dios, which was floating uh, <laughs> packages of, uh, That's a kilo. of cocaine. Yeah. That's a kilo. That's a queso. You'd see people walking up and down the, the beach every looking morning for. trying to look yeah. for Yeah, that happened a lot. That ha As a matter of fact, I found a duffel bag off of Orange Key in the Bahamas with 65 kilos in it one time. Of cocaine? Of coke, yeah. Wow. And, that, and at that time, letting it go cheaply, I was getting rid of it at 30000 a key. So put the numbers to that one. And that happened a lot. It puts 65 times 30000 whatever that comes up to. It was a lot. It was a, a lot of money. $2 million now? Yeah, it was a lot of money. Excuse me. It was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, why, why the Bahamas? Why is the Bahamas, why did it become such a center of uh, drug trafficking? Money, 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 money. Everyone was paid off. Did you pay off people? Hell yeah. Hell yeah, you paid everybody off. You pay, you, that's, that's the only way you could work. So how would you pay them off? Cash. I, I did it a lot, believe it or not, with watches. Most of the time with a watch. They loved, they loved fancy watches and they loved Rolexes. So I would give one to the customs agent. I would give one to the, to the uh, immigration official. Uh, and you could tell. I mean, they'll be looking at your wrist, looking at maybe the chain on your neck. And, doop, doop, here you go. No problem. So that was a, that was a way to pay it off. Now, the, the bigger people, they, they wanted cash. They, they could buy their own watches. The Bahamas was also a notoriously difficult landscape to police. 
It's made up of 700 islands. And even today, only 30 of them are inhabited. Try to cover them. Huh? Good luck. Let me know how that works out for you. It's not going to happen. JC was becoming a pro at organizing shipments of Jamaican weed through the Bahamas while working on his side hustle, fishing for his own square groupers. But then a new lucrative drug landed on the island and caught his eye. JC Perez was doing quite well smuggling weed through the Bahamas. But during the 1980s war on drugs, more resources were dedicated to policing marijuana. And criminal sentences got a lot tougher. JC says this crackdown on weed actually created more of an incentive for trafficking cocaine. Back in those days, you were going to catch time, plenty of time for weed, just like coke. You can load a lot more coke in a plane than you can weed. Okay, so economically, it's like no contest, no contest whatsoever. I've heard this kind of story before during my recent reporting on drug trafficking. Cocaine is more practical to smuggle. It can be packed into smaller packages and therefore easier to hide, which in the end means more bang for your buck. They traded the devil for the devil's family, and they got screwed really good. Obviously, the U.S. always thinks they know better than everybody else. And you know what? There are smart people everywhere. So it became clear to JC that the next profitable venture was in Coke, in that because of the increased presence of law enforcement, its smuggling route should be in the sky. So how did you learn how to fly it, and how did you become a pilot in the first place? Well, I, I went on a few trips with, uh, with guys that were pilots, and I, I have an interest, but I bought myself a simulator. I started learning my instruments, and then I went to uh, Homestead General Airport down in Homestead, Florida, and I got my license. You were taught by drug traffickers how to fly? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Now, these are bush pilots, man. These guys are better than airline pilots. These guys know how to put shit down in a, in, a, in a storm, in the woods. You just give them a strip and they can lay it down. I know a lot of people that died in plane crashes. You know, half of those, half of those missing people in the Bermuda Triangle are drug runs gone bad. No one reports that, though. Who's going to tell? Oh, you're going to call up the police and go, oh, by the way, I had a drug shipment coming up and it hasn't arrived yet. Can you please check because it's lost? That doesn't happen, Okay. If you go around Bimini, you can see an airplane graveyard. It wasn't just skills that made the pilot. It took guts. How many pilots out there? How many are willing to do it? How many will take the risk? Not many. I looked at it as 150%. Okay, you had 50 to win, 50 to lose, and 50 to die. Getting in the plane and, and, uh, and knowing what to do with it and, and where to go and, and how things went, that, that's a different ballgame. That's why they needed me. JC was a little hesitant to get into the coke trafficking business, but his piloting skills put him in high demand and on the radar of the infamous Medellin cartel. I turned jobs down a lot, a lot, and I finally said, all right, all right, let's do this. And uh, I did it. I flew uh, one into Bibney, a couple into Norman's Cay. Do you remember the first flight? What was that like and how much were you transporting? 250 keys. Wow. Yeah. 250 keys, that was the first one. That was done in a, uh, in a Piper Navajo, twin-engine Piper Navajo with all the seats ripped out and a big bladder inside it for extra uh, fuel. That was my first trip. And that was, was from where to where? La Guajira to Bimney. 
I don't know if you've ever seen it or seen a picture of it. And it's just endless sand, hard packed like red sand. You could always tell if somebody was in the Wahida because the bottom of the plane would be speckled like, 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 uh, like reddish from all the sand from landing and taking off. Right. And how did you feel? Were you nervous? Hell yeah. <laughs> if you're not nervous, you're not right. It's a very stressful situation. Even though you know how to do it and what to do it, you, you, know, you don't know when things could, uh, you know, go the wrong way for you. You have no idea. It's a chance thing. So yeah, I was very nervous. Not about the flying, about, ah, is anybody gonna see me? Am I gonna get caught? You know, a lot of, you know, they put the citation up in the air, the, uh, the, the Coast Guard plane, that son of a bitch will fly right up on you and he'll follow you all the way home. But then again, every, every flight that I ever did, I smoked a joint or two on the way. You did? Yeah, it would calm me down. Uh, you know, you're, I don't want to be up there with, excuse me, with, you know, my manhood in the back of my throat. I figured if I'm going to get caught, if something's going to go wrong, at least I'm going to be at ease. Did you like flying? I love flying. Flying is, I mean, the sights from a small plane, when you look down, especially where I flew over the Caribbean, is like, it's beautiful. So describe to me, what did you see? Why was it beautiful? Oh, the islands. Uh, you could see fish, big fish, obviously, every once in a while, swimming. You'd see boats. You'd see people on beaches. All kinds of things. It was neat. It was, it was, it was a beautiful sight. It really is. And colorful. The, 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 the pastel colors blow your mind. They're, they're wonderful. When you get down tight, usually kept it very low, it's one of the most beautiful sights you could ever see. And that was to avoid detection? At the time, yeah, you would put it down at about 100 feet. So you, you really have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. So it's like hands-on the whole way. Hands-on the whole way, yeah. JC wasn't just valuable as a young reckless guy with the skill to take these flights. He says he had connections to help make sure those flights went smoothly. His close family ties to those revolutionary fighters. I had a, a cousin who was in the FBI. And he was an old revolutionary. And he was stationed in Miami and the Caribbean. So he would tell me where, where everything was when I went to work. He would tell me where the Coast Guard was, where the Citation was, where the Marine Patrol would be, where uh, if there's any DEA uh, agent stationed anywhere. He also had someone at the Miami Tower uh, who would tell him exactly what was in the radar and that radar went far out. So I knew everything that was going on for hundreds of miles, okay? Wow, so you had an informant. Yeah, yeah. Did you pay him? Yeah, hell yeah. Hell yeah. How much? Every time I went to do something, he'd get anywhere between, depending on the load, I'd get 10, 20 grand. How much money, what was, what would, how much money were you bringing in at the peak? Well, you know, you don't, you don't do a trip every week where I made, uh, I think 225000 for that first run, yeah. And it usually stayed right around there. Where all this cash came from, only God knows. Only God knows, but boy, was it ever there. And it was constant. I got to the point where I owned two houses in Miami, owned an airplane, owned a few boats, owned a property in Colorado, and owned land in the Bahamas. Expensive vacations in Aspen, uh, you know, New York City, Europe. So the money went fast, you know? You, you don't do those things on, on a budget. 
you know, it, the money, the money goes fast. Money goes real, real fast. Were you ever partying in Miami and seeing cocaine all around you and thinking, Shit. I know exactly where this came from and it was probably maybe perhaps brought in by me? Yeah, absolutely. It happens. Uh, it happened a lot. Miami was pretty wide open about things uh, back in those days. I'd go to Monty's. I'd see people snorting off the table. And it's a it's a it's a coconut grove hangout. And back in those days, the people that hung out there were local hippies or big time drug runners. I'd see people empty a bag out, boom, and start snorting right on the table. And the waitress take their order like nothing was going on. I'd see people riding down the street with, you know, with one hand driving and the other hand bumping their noses. And you go, look at that fool. But that was Miami. That was Miami. Oh did you ever feel bad about the fact that you're bringing in drugs that were, you know, in many ways sort of destroying people's lives? You do have thoughts of that. But then again, I don't stick anything up anybody's nose, nor did I tell anybody to make crack and go kill themselves with it. I'm not here to make choices for you. So this is something that I hear a lot from drug traffickers that I speak to all around the world. This idea that they're not forcing anyone to take drugs, and so they bear no responsibility for the users. But the fact of the matter is that they do play a part in the drug supply. JC was making a lot of money as cocaine flooded Miami. The trafficking of all that coke was controlled by a select few in the city, who were connected to bosses in Colombia and surrounded by violence. So the people involved in this trade earned a title— Cocaine Cowboys. There was even a documentary that brought the story to the big screen. And that whole cocaine cowboy thing, boy, they missed bad on that. They missed really bad. They, they missed the whole target. So what, what is it that you think they got wrong on the cocaine cowboys? Who they really were and who the bosses were. They got it all wrong. That they did bring in and do those things. You can't deny that. Of course they did that. The main group of what the cocaine cowboys were, what they called the, the, the Miami Five. And I worked for one of them, okay? I, I ran things for one of them, yeah, yeah. And they were, they were the real guys. They were, uh, I mean, they, they controlled it. JC didn't want to publicly name the boss he worked for. He also has a lot of surprising opinions about the hierarchy inside the Medellin cartel. Everybody talks about Pablo. Let me do it. He was a front man. He was a front man. In Colombia, if you want to talk to the bosses, you got to go talk to the Ochoas, Okay. And the Mexican, who, who, who they, call, they call them the Mexican, his name is Rodriguez Gacha. He's dead now, too. Pablo was scared to death of him, okay? And he didn't mess with the Ochoas because they were the real bosses. Would you call yourself a cocaine cowboy? No. No. I was just a worker. But I was an essential worker, just like nurses are today, <laughs> you know, with the COVID. I was essential. So here I was telling everybody that I was about to interview a cocaine cowboy and you don't, you have, you take issue with that. Why? I don't like the term too much. Now, obviously I was part of it. So, you know, all I'm doing is denying terminology. I, I just didn't consider myself, a, you know, first of all, I went from point A to point B and then I got lost. I worked within it, but the titles, no, bro, I'm like my father. Give me the money. You can keep the title. So the whole cocaine cowboy thing is all the wars that went on in Miami. People killing each other over the coke and over this. And I wasn't involved in any of that. JC says he wasn't directly involved in the violence of the drug war. But his actions still got him into some really tight spots.
The trouble started with the pilots JC hired to fly a load of Colombian cocaine to Bimini. JC would then unload the cargo and make sure it got from the Bahamas to Miami. Sounds like lots of other trips he set up, right down to the bribery. The sergeant who was the head of the island was already paid off and he was in bed sleeping, so he didn't give a shit. Okay, so it was, you know, you could pull it off. The plane was set to land in the middle of the night on an airstrip that had no lighting. So what we do is we set up cars on each end of the strip, the runway. Obviously, those lights can't shine to the middle of the strip, but they give you a sight of where you have to put it down and where you have to run to. Right. I talked to him on a, on a 20 meter radio, on a 2040, on a shortwave radio. And he's ready to go and he takes off. The pilot takes off from La Guajira Peninsula in Colombia with his 250 kilos of cocaine. And there was a couple of new guys that I didn't, never saw before that, and, and that were brought in by some of the people I worked with. I found that a little strange, but you have so many other things in your mind that I'm thinking ahead of them. I'm thinking, shit, we got a plane coming in, I got to worry about other things. Screw these guys, I don't care who they are. They're here to make some money, God bless them, you know? When I think that he's getting to us, I communicate with him. And I call him, I said, where are you? He goes, I'm getting ready to land. It's, if you've ever been in the Bahamas at night, man, you can see every star and every light out there. And I'm looking around and, and I go, where are you? I don't see you. He goes, I'm touching down in Stella Maris. And I said, who told you to go there? That was another mistake that I was like, God, this, this shit's getting strange. And I told him, I go, take off, get out of there and get over to Bimini. And I, I'm guessing here, but I'm, is that he, it got picked up by the radar right away. This is called a touch and go. The plane didn't stop. It just landed and lifted right back up. And that short little moment on the runway, that can attract a lot of attention. So he takes off, comes to Bimini. By the time he's landing, okay, I can see him coming in. I can see him on approach, but I see lights behind him also. Right there stuck to him. And I'm, you know, I'm like going, holy fuck, can't believe this shit. But as he touches down, I see the Coast Guard citation coming right up over him. Where he's touching down, I'm at that end on a motor scooter. So he touches down, I take off. And I mean, I've got this, in, this thing in full throttle, but I'm yelling at him going, there's somebody behind you, somebody behind you, you know, trying to warn him. So he's running down, the Coast Guard touches down behind him. They're not allowed to be on the island, right? They're not allowed to do anything there. So as he gets to the end of the runway, the citation <laughs> takes off. At the time, U.S. authorities could patrol the airspace around the Bahamas, but they couldn't touch down. So as I get to the end, two Huey helicopters come from the beach, from the Miami side, come, I mean, rushing right up over the airstrip, right where I was, and they got the big spotlight on and I just got scared. I gunned the, uh, the the motor scooter and I just ran it into the mangroves. I just as far as I could go. Boom, 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 boom. I got all. And who? Wait, who? Who? Were, who was in the helicopters? Uh, I would imagine U.S. Navy, DEA. Who knows? I mean, authorities. So, but it were U.S. authorities, American authorities. You, you, yeah, definitely U.S. authorities. Definitely U.S. authorities. So I, I gunned it into the mangroves. And I got all smashed up. I mean, I got all kinds of busted up. And I just, I was just laying there and this freaking spotlight comes right up over me. I was so beat up and so tired, so exhausted. All of a sudden, I hear a shot go off. Boom, boom, boom. And I know guns and I know damn well it was a shotgun. 
And the minute that the shotguns went off, the, 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 the spotlight came off of me and went over there and the chopper kind of moved off. And survival instinct kicked in and I just, I got up and I just ran deeper into the mangrove. And when I heard the, the shotgun go off, I also heard returning fire, which was, it was a high caliber gun. It's, they sound completely different. And I knew that to be the chopper who was saying, if we're getting shot at, we're gonna shoot too. So I guess everybody started scattering. I didn't see anybody. I'm deep in the mangroves. And I said, I gotta hide somehow. So I start covering myself with mud and, and sand and everything I, I could get a hold of. And miraculously, there was a, a, a crab hole. Because there's a lot of crabs in the mangrove. And I, I stuck my feet down in the crab hole as far as they would go, and it was only about to my knees. Right, and then I just kind of laid down, and I started covering myself, and the, and the spotlight just kept going and going and going and looking, and then the voice I heard was a woman's voice, who got on a megaphone, and started saying, "Your bosses aren't going to like this too much that you lost this load. How you? What are you going to explain to them?" And she started saying this, and I'm I'm cussing her out like you wouldn't believe, under my breath, obviously. I go, "You." Bitch, you son of a God, after all this shit, and then a woman bags me like this. Not that not that a woman can't, but you know how I did. I mean, here we are in this manly shit going on, and, and who puts it all down is a woman, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I got more power than all of you. <laughs> and she was right. And she This was, is the part where I'm a little bit happy that you got caught in that situation. <laughs> and and she was right too. She was she was damn right. So anyway, I, I was in the mangrove for a into, into the next day. It ended up being like over 36 hours. The following night, I waited until it was good and late. And I, I got out of the mangrove and in, at the Bimini airport, there's just one road that goes all the way from, from the ocean down where the homes are. There's nothing but mangroves and woods and mangroves and woods. So I stuck my head out, I'm looking both ways and I began to walk back. To, uh, to the hotel where we had been, Duncombe's Hotel. And I kept thinking that I was still sweating. So I'm brushing myself like this and brushing the sweat off me. And when I got back to the hotel, my partner was still sitting there and, uh, and he comes over and he grabs me, he sits me down, he goes, are you okay? He goes, are you, are you hurt? And I said, I don't think so. He goes, well, you're bleeding everywhere. And it was all the mosquito bites, my, they had, they had kicked the living hell out of me. I was just, and I was swollen up. I got back home, I knocked on the door, and my wife looked through the peephole, and she wouldn't open the door for me because she couldn't recognize me. Wow. I'm not sure if that was my last trip. It was definitely my last trip to Bimney. Okay, I ended Bimney right away. And that's when I started going, man, there's a lot of strange shit that's going on. Number one, we never took guns, okay? That was, if you get caught, Get caught without a gun, because you get caught with a gun, it's 20 extra years. I started thinking I was getting set up. Actually, to this day, I thank them for busting that trip, because I truly believe that I was getting set up and they would have diced me and taken everything, and, no, and who's going to ask about a dead guy in a drug run? While his coke was seized that day, JC actually never did get busted for all of this drug trafficking. He did eventually get busted, but he says it was for a very different kind of business. Horse business. You can look at it that way. I owned a farm and I showed, I raised and showed horses. It was a nice business. It wasn't a business, it was a hobby. 
because it was a goddamn Hoover vacuum. Money went out and nothing came in. Um, the reason that, that, that I get arrested, okay, is because a farm next to mine was owned by the head of the cartel. And he was a Cuban guy. JC says he bought a couple of horses from his neighbor. And when the neighbor was investigated for money laundering and drug offenses, things got complicated for JC. He gets busted. And evidently, uh, uh, the, the authorities had the name of every th- horse that he owned. And it came down to like three horses. I said to him, where are these horses? And uh, he told them, he goes, I sold them to him. So they came to my farm, okay? The D, I mean, it was alphabet soup. It was the FBI, the DEA, the customs, immigration, you name it, all with their little blue jackets and their lettering in the back, you bunch of assholes. And from that day on, they made my life a living hell. It didn't take long before I got a call from the FBI. They put me in a polygraph. They do a polygraph. After about an hour, they had asked me questions about everything except horses. Do you know this guy? Do you know that guy? Do you know this guy? Do you know that guy? I got pissed off. I ripped the things off my fingers. I took the chest thing off. I told them to go screw themselves and to call my lawyer if they wanted to talk. Well, it didn't take long before they had done an investigation. They wanted to know how I got the money to do this, that, and the other thing. You think they were, essentially, they knew about your drug business days and they were coming after you for that? I mean, I was retired. And maybe that pissed them off. Oh, they put me through hell. And the next thing I know, I was doing the shoo-shoo shuffle. You know what the shoo-shoo shuffle is? No. That's when, the, that's when they put handcuffs even on your feet. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. So what were you charged with exactly? Money laundering, basically. There are no accessible court records about the specifics of J.C.'s case. But we do know he was incarcerated for a little over four years. Do they take everything you own? Everything. What do they take? the whole farm and everything. Luckily, as a matter of fact, that farm today, that farm today is a monkey farm where they breed, they breed monkeys there now. It went from yeah. horse business to monkey business. It's a, yeah, it's a monkey farm now. It's really That's unbelievable. Funny. When did you leave prison? 96, June of 96. 24 years ago uh, was when you left prison. Did you then and do you now, do you ever get tempted? about going back into the smuggling life. <laughs> I was going to tell you that. No, no, now no. I've, uh, I've actually realized that the people that get hurt, like I said, are the people on the outside. I would not do that to my wife or my kids now. I, that would be very selfish, especially with the chances of shit going bad. Do you think it's still being used for drug trafficking, the Bahamas? There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Yeah. There's no doubt. I was contacted by authorities who actually knew knew my history and things like that. Uh, and I was like, you got the wrong guy. I mean, I've been retired for a long time, so they didn't bother me. They were asking for help, you know, and I, I laughed because I know that most of them couldn't catch Mickey Mouse in a cheese factory. Next time on The Traffic Podcast... They gave a couple of stoner arms dealers, as they called us in the media, uh, the responsibility to arm the Afghan nation. You might know David Pakow's story from the movie War Dogs, but we want to hear it from him directly. He had $1.8 million in the bank. I want to know what he knows. (laughs) So I said, I'm in. (laughs) 
He was really young when he got into the arms business and when a handful of decisions and mistakes took the business down. And did you know that there were incriminating things in the, the emails? Ah, uh, extremely incriminating. Um, there were emails between us saying, hey, don't forget to repackage the Chinese ammo. The subject line was uh, extra secret. Re-crimes. <laughs> On the next episode of The Trafficked Podcast. The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to the National Geographic TV series Trafficked and is produced for Nat Geo by Muck Media. Margaret Catcher is lead producer. Ted Woods is executive producer and audio engineer. Abby Spears is associate producer. And Paula Benson is line producer. Production assistance by Scott Kirk. Original music by Jeff Morrow. The Traffic TV series is available now on National Geographic, and new episodes air Wednesdays. Executive producers for NetGeo are the awesome Chris Albert, the amazing Bengt Anderson, and the fabulous Matt Renner. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Blunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Marietta Van Zeller. Special thanks to Zoe Har, Todd Herman, Vilma Linares, Rodrigo Gonzalez, Jeffrey Deal Allen, Lady Gonzalez Perez, and JC Perez. If you like this podcast, subscribe and tell your friends all about it. See you next time in the underground. <laughs>